But with that, let's pray, and we'll get into Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. Uh, Father, we do thank you and praise you for this day. I thank you, Lord, for uh, your word. I thank you for this eloquent, sophisticated, detailed letter of the Hebrews. We have been working our way through this book, and there are challenging portions um, that are important. And so, Lord, I ask that as we continue our study that you would help me to communicate the truth that's found in the second part of chapter 9 in a clear way, uh, that we would rightly understand uh, the situation at the time of writing historically, that we would have a, a, a better understanding of drawing out the principles for today uh, from within uh, these verses of, of Holy Scripture. Father, there are so many of us here from just different places in our walk and relationship with you, and so we ask that by your Spirit the Word would go out and minister to each one of us where we are. Lord, we ask that you would help us to understand the great truth of what Jesus did for us on the cross, that we would truly experience the deep cleansing that only he can offer. Father, we pray that you would help us to truly to worship you, to serve you, to honor you, uh, with all of our lives. As we just saying, you are holy, holy, holy. And so, Lord, we come to you now asking that you would guide us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. Hebrews chapter 9, verse 15. <clears throat> For this reason, he is the mediator of a new covenant so that since a death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. For where a covenant is, there must of necessity be the death of the one who made it. For a covenant is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who made it lives. Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say all things are cleansed with blood. And without shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place met with, uh, made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, 
now to appear in the presence of God for us. Nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world. But now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. And inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, so Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, will appear a second time for salvation without reference to sin to those who eagerly await him. Father, we thank you for your word. We ask that it would live for us this day, uh, that we would understand it, that we would recognize how it uh, applies to our life. Father, we ask that your grace would abound. We love you, Lord. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen. I want to start out with an applause, like you guys have been sticking out Hebrews. We've had some, there's been some very heavy lifting at, at times. We're, we're, we're nearing the very end of sort of the, the difficult sort of doctrinal element of Hebrews. Um, by nearing, I mean a few more weeks to go. By the, chapter 10 really is sort of like the crescendo of, of Hebrews. Uh, we transition to chapter 11, 12, and 13. Uh, we'll get into the sort of the so what, very easy, very uh, uh, to understand the, the application of many things. But, but the application, it must be born sort of from doctrine, from truth, um, a foundation that we build upon. And so I salute you for coming back. If you're visiting, I really feel sorry because this is like the equivalent of... Uh, you know, putting on a blindfold in the middle of the night and then somebody just kicking you into the deep end of the pool and just saying, figure it out. I hope you can do okay. But I did have you in mind, especially today, is this passage can get quite difficult. I, um, I, I finished my notes. And I thought, this is probably, I could lose some people here. So I deleted it. And then I started fresh to make it more simple. And then the pages grew. And I thought, oh, man. Delete it again, delete it again. So last night on my fourth one, I think I have it sort of in, there's a lot of information here and I want to present it as, as clear as possible so that we would understand what the author of Hebrews is communicating um, and not lose you. So I'm going to have to remind myself to kind of not get too much into the weeds but to sort of stay on the, the, the bigger picture and we'll focus on a number of phrases that are found within uh, this section, and hopefully at the end as we come to communion, we will see that communion ties in perfectly with this passage for at the core of this passage is the gospel. Um, and the gospel is that Jesus died on the cross according to the scriptures, according to prophecy, that he was buried on the third day he rose, and he did this on our behalf. And that's what communion, communion is a, is a, is a symbol, a reminder, uh, a memorial service that we reflect upon what Christ has done. And so today we're dealing with what Christ has done. There's a very Jewish spin on this because this, uh, the context is that Hebrews was written 
in about AD 65, five years prior to the destruction of the temple. There were Jews who became what we would call completed Jews and that they came to trust in the Messiah as their savior. But as they left their religion, they left their family, they left their culture, they were drifting back into the ritual system that they were entering back into the temple and making sacrifices again and again, following their belief in Jesus and his once and for all sacrifice on the cross. And I think this is relevant for us. It's so easy for us to come to Christ, to recognize his grace, to recognize what he has done on our behalf as our substitute for our sin, to receive it, but then to go about our lives punishing ourselves for sins in the past, not fully experiencing freedom. You've been set free from your sin. Christ has paid it all. And so a lot of the next couple weeks are going to be sort of the author of Hebrews is going to sound sort of like a broken record. He's going to hit the importance of Christ and his sacrifice over and over again. And so we start in verse 15 with this first phrase. And he says, for this reason, he is, a, is the mediator of a new covenant. So when I read this, for this reason, this is a, a, a phrase that sort of ties us into the context. If, if chapter 9 was a teeter-totter, uh, verses 11 through 14 would be the hinge that it all balances sort of back and forth on. The, the first half of chapter 9 dealt with worship. Um, we see it in verse 1, we see it in verse 6, we see it in verse 9, we see it in the Greek in verse 14, although it's translated to serve there. The author introduces the tabernacle under Moses and how that whole system um, fell short for that as they made the sacrifices, the, the sacrifices that were made could only cleanse skin deep. As for, far as the conscience was concerned, the law, the mosaic system could never cleanse anything but externally. And it was never totally sufficient. It, it had to be redone over and over and over and over again. Then we come to verse 11. But when Christ appeared, everything changed. We see that when Christ appeared, he didn't make a sacrifice of goats or calves, but that he offered himself. And in verse 14, we see how much more will the blood of Christ to the eternal spirit offered, uh, through the eternal spirit offered himself without blemish to God, cleanse your conscience from dead works. So what the law could never do, Jesus' sacrifice on the cross penetrated to the very innermost being of who we are, that place of your conscience, the place where when you sin, when you do wrong in a healthy form of conscience, now I don't want to get too far off track, a conscience can be seared, a conscience can be uh, led away from God. You can't necessarily trust your conscience. But in the most purest form, your conscience is the place where God's voice can speak to you, can zap you for doing wrong, convict you of your sin. And in verse 14, we're told that the sacrifice of, of Christ on the cross, his offering, his blood, washes us white as snow in our innermost being at that place where guilt 
condemns us. He says, you've been cleansed in your conscience through him. It says to serve the living God, really, literally to worship the living God. For this reason, for this reason, he, Jesus, is the mediator of a new covenant, contrasted with the old covenant, the old covenant under Moses, a system of you do these things, and if you maintain the deal that was set up, then I'll bless you, but if you don't, they'll be cursing on you. The new covenant is unilateral. Christ did all. So that since a death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions that were committed under the first covenant, those who have been called may receive the promise of the eternal inheritance. There's a lot there. I want to make it, this is one of the points where I want to make as simple as possible we see that since a death has taken place for the redemption of transgressions, so for the redemption of sins under the first covenant, the old covenant, behind this verse is the question that would have been in the mind of a Jewish Jewish individual during the first century. Namely, what about our forefathers who lived under the law, who lived under the Mosaic system, who lived and died before Christ? What about them? Are they saved? And what the author is saying is that that the, that the sacrifice of Christ is retroactive. Really, retroactive things are pretty awesome, especially when you work with the government and you find out that it's like you're supposed to get this new pay and it's retroactive. <laughs> and they go back like a couple years and it's like, jackpot, it's golden. What the author is saying is that from Adam... To the last person who will live on earth, they are all saved by the work of Christ. Now, the people under the old covenant, everything was a a foreshadowing, a picture, and they didn't have all the clarity. They had some. They had Isaiah 53, they had Psalm 22. They had things that pointed to the Messiah. But when they made their sacrifices in the correct way and they, they operated under the condition that they were doing this by faith, that something greater would come, That greater was Christ, but they didn't know. He's saying that their sins were covered. We look back to the cross. They were looking forward to the cross. And he says that they may receive this last phrase, the promise of the eternal inheritance. Inheritance is an interesting word. I... uh, I'm having a debate in my head right now. That's why I got quiet. (laughs) How much do I share? I, you know, I'm pretty open about things, and and I, uh, my dad has, you know, his health is declining. My role has been um, increasing uh, with his, you know, as 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 an attorney, in fact, and and having to make decisions and having to deal with them. And um, this whole path, like inheritance, uh, uh, like what is an inheritance? I know, I know I'm skipping some steps in my mind, but, it, but an inheritance is sort of, it indicates that somebody died and their possessions are left t- to whoever, right? Inheritance. So this author, he moves from their sins have been paid for, but they may receive the promise of this inheritance. Inheritance indicates that somebody died and that a gift was left, 
Now, I don't have time to go over each and every one, but throughout the New Testament, there's talk of this inheritance. I have it all up there, but in Ephesians 1, 14 and 18, Colossians 3, 23 and 24, and 1 Peter 1, 3 and 5, you can go and read these things, but we, we see there that, that believers in Christ, followers of Christ, somehow have been included into this will. And something happened which then uh, kicked off this inheritance that, that was provided to those who follow after him. And from this talk of eternal inheritance, the author is going to do a wordplay. There's a homonym. Now, a homonym is when you have one word that's spelled the same way, pronounced the same way, but it can mean two different things, and the only way to determine uh, two different things are the context. For example, the word bark. What image comes to your mind? Now, there's a lot of dog people here, so I'm thinking, raise your hand if you thought of a dog barking. Now, there's some mountain people who thought of a tree bark. And is there another version of bark? I don't know if somebody else is there. Root beer barks. That's barks. Uh, Another illustration would be spring. So spring can be what? Who Who thought of water coming out of a ground? One person. Who thought of a spring that pops? A couple of people. Who thought of... We're ready for spring. So we're like the, the people who love summer, they're ready for it to get warm again already. That's spring. Three different from the same word, spring. The only way you can tell is if I explain it to you. Uh, what are some other ones? Duck. Now, if you're my daughter or my family, we, actually, we automatically think of a bird that you shoot out of the sky and your dog goes and gets it and brings it back. Or you could think of Gunner's going to throw a softball and you've got a duck to get out of the way. So this word covenant in the Greek is a homonym. He's been using it the whole way through this. But in verses 16 and 17, he's actually doing a wordplay, and he means the other definition. And in the New American Standard, the, 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 the translators just left the word covenant the same. But really, the other word, the other definition is a will, your last will and testament. So I want to read these verses sort of with the actual meaning of the word. It makes more sense. For where a will is, there must of necessity be the death of one who made it. So if there's a will, a will has no power by itself. When does it become powerful? When do people start fighting? When do attorneys get involved? At death. At death, the will is the most powerful thing that that person has which he says in verse 17, for a will is valid only when men are dead, for it is never in force while the one who makes it lives. You can have multiple wills. You better be clear which one was the last one because when you die, all of your family is going to start fighting over which one was most valid and they're going to argue that the most valid one is where they have the most benefits, right? So this springboard, so he goes from inheritance, this great eternal inheritance. Now he starts talking about a will, and it's like, what is he talking about? Somebody must have died. And in verses 18 through 22, this section, I think that I should just read it before I start explaining it. I'm going to ask you a question, if you can identify the key word in these few verses. 
Therefore, even the first covenant was not inaugurated without blood. For when every commandment had been spoken by Moses to all the people according to the law, he took the blood of the calves and the goats with water and scarlet wool and hyssop and sprinkled both the book itself and all the people, saying, this is the blood of the covenant which God commanded you. And in the same way, he sprinkled both the tabernacle and all the vessels of the ministry with the blood. And according to the law, one may almost say, all things are cleansed with blood. And without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. What was the key word in that passage? Blood. And six times in there, blood is mentioned. If we were to back up to verse 11 and sort of work our way through, we would see that blood is mentioned in verse 12. We would see that blood is mentioned in verse 13. We would see in verse 14 that blood is mentioned again. Uh, As we move on, we see um, verse 25, blood is also mentioned. So it's like 10 or 11 times in this section the word blood is mentioned. If I was to really spend some time here, I could really go into how really gross this is. Um, I don't know what you think of when you read this, but it would be very easy to sort of read this and to sort of uh, make it sound like this sprinkling of blood was like glitter, you know, like he's in there with glitter, like he's sprinkling glitter. It's so wonderful, like, like all of these things. But if you read this with what's being described, it's like the priest is in there with a sacrifice and the carotid artery got hit, and it's like, there's blood everywhere. It's a slaughterhouse. It's nasty. It's, it's been reported, or not reported, it's uh, reported, it gives a different, uh, it's estimated that over a million animals were sacrificed. We know that at the Temple Mount during the holidays, they, would, they had a canal that was built that went from the slaughter place down to the Kedron Valley, and it was like just blood flowing like a river. Think of the smell, the stickiness, the nastiness. This is vile. This, this is where, where animals were going in and their lives are being taken and blood is just splattering over everything. And the very last phrase, without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness. I think that's a key. Uh, there's a book last year that was written, uh, The Crucifixion, and it tells a story sort of citing a, a, an article that was written in People magazine in 1986 called uh, the Syndex. You know, like a Rolodex? The Syndex or the Heat Index, you know, kind of like. And, and so let me read you what they wrote here. It says, People magazine once undertook a part serious, part tongue-in-cheek survey of its readers on the subject of sin. The results were published as a Syndex. With each sin rated by a sin coefficient... The outcome is both amusing and instructive. Sins like murder, child abuse, and spying against one's country were rated the worst sins in ascending order, with smoking, swearing, and illegal videotaping down, far down the list. Parking in a handicapped spot was rated surprisingly high, which makes total sense to me. That's my pet peeve. Whereas unmarried lived-togethers got off lightly. Cutting in front of somebody in line was deemed worse than divorce or capital punishment. Predictably, corporate sin was not mentioned at all. The survey concluded, overall readers said they commit about 4.64 sins per month. 
and we all laughed because like a, a month. I thought it was like a minute. Like what are we talking? Like what? And I, and I think that the the point why I read this is it's very easy for us to dismiss our sin. It's very easy for us to take sin lightly. It's 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 really easy for us to look at other people's sin and value how bad it is. But when it comes to our own sin, we're very good at we're great justifiers of, of eh, it's really not that bad. Death is always associated with sin. Sin always hurts somebody. Sin should stir something within us. And the way that God has done this is to create this system of of animal sacrifice. I'm not looking for a showing of hands. But if you've ever had to take the life of anything, it's hard. I'm a trained killer. And I tell you, I like going fishing sometimes, it's like, it's like, I'm sorry, little fishy, you know, like bunk. Look it in the eye. It's like, thank you, little fishy, for giving your life for my belly. I mean, I, we eat meat all the time. We have, part, like, I can go in and out, eat a hamburger with no, like, no qualms at all. Like, I am a meat eater. I like meat. I would prefer to have mostly meat. But there's something different. We're disconnected. There's something different. We're looking something in the eye taking its life. And this whole system was set up that you took your cute little lamb who you loved and you adored, your best of the best, and you place your hands on its head and say, the reason this is about to happen to you is because of my sin. And you're going to be slaughtered and the blood is flowing like a river from the the Temple Mount down to the valley. And I think that God's system here in these verses is to help us wake up to the vileness of our sin. That sin is really, really bad. And under their system, the old covenant, it was only an external thing. It could never penetrate to salvation or the, the most like inward core of who you are. So then we come to verse 23. Therefore, because of what I've just said or what he's just said, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. He, um, last week we talked about copies, patterns, shadows, dealing with the tabernacle that when God gave to Moses the instructions on how to build the tabernacle, how to set up the whole order of worship, which they valued greatly. That, that wasn't the end. It was, it, was a, it was a replica, something minor compared to the, the, the real one up in heaven. And so here in verse 23, he says, it was necessary for the copies of the things in the heavens to be cleansed with these. It, it was necessary for the tabernacle to have all of these animal sacrifices. It served a purpose. It pointed to the, the real, the original, the tabernacle in heaven. I, uh, for some reason this week, what I keep thinking about is the raid on Osama bin Laden, which I don't know that you guys think much about it. I don't even know how much you've like, done some research on how it happened. But because that was a community that I came from, I, I've d- d- just been interested in it. Thankful that the Marines didn't do it, uh, mainly. And that's, there's obviously no Marines here throwing stuff at me right now. Um, but it's fascinating. This, this ties in, kind of. Um, so we all know about the raid 
that happened in Pakistan. But for months and months bef- like beforehand, they had collected really solid intelligence. They had taken satellite imagery. They had intel that was coming from the ground troops, uh, observers around, um, to get sort of all of the information on the compound. None of this is classified. This is all in books. As you can all Google this. It's not anything. Uh, but so what they did is on the East Coast, they recreated the compound that, that bin Laden was living in. Like everything was recreated. They rebuilt the building. They rebuilt the walls. They ran the mission hundreds and hundreds of times. Everything, exactly how it would be run for the actual operation. None of those test runs mattered. None of those test runs meant anything. The only thing that mattered was the actual operation that went down in Pakistan. Now, the, the, this illustration breaks down because the guys who ran the operation in Pakistan were the same guys that were training on it here, where this is where we sort of depart. And so I kind of have this imagery that the, the tabernacle was sort of the pretend compound that they're practicing on, sort of pointing to the real deal. But the real deal wasn't performed by the priest. Already the author of Hebrews has told us that if Christ was on earth again, he would never function as a priest because he's of a different order. He's of the order of Melchizedek. His tabernacle that he serves is the one that's in heavens, in the heavens. And so we continue verse 23. Therefore, it was necessary for the copies, the tabernacle, the things in the heavens to be cleansed. So it's a, the copies of the thing in heaven to be cleansed with these, but the heavenly things themselves, the actual, with better sacrifices than these. For Christ did not enter a holy place made with hands, a mere copy of the true one, but into heaven itself, now to appear in the presence of God for us. The high priest could only go into the replica the holiest of holies like we talked about last week. He could only do it once a year. He could only do it with like, you get like a pail of blood for his own sins, for the sins that were unknown by the people of Israel. And nobody could go with him. The scripture doesn't tell us that they tied a rope, but we sort of historically believe that they, they tied a rope to the high priest when he did this for fear that in God's presence, if he was killed, Nobody would have to go in after him and they could just drag him out. And the idea is when the high priest once a year went in there, the priest had access to the holy places. And last year, or not last year, last service, I wanted to name this high priest something, so, but it had to be a good Jewish name. So we came up with Reuben and, and it was uh, it's a good name. I've been hungry for a Reuben sandwich ever since, but... Uh, so Reuben, the high priest, he would go into the holiest of holies. The rest of the priests would be behind the curtain. Is he going to come out? Is he going to come out? How long do we wait before we give a tongue to see? Well, I can see that he's doing something. And then Reuben would come out and they'd be like, all oh, right, you survived. Awesome. Okay, we made our, we made our, our the day of atonement. We made it was pleasing to God. You came out. There was rejoicing. They could never take anybody else in there with them. The whole picture of where this is going with Jesus, the crescendo of Hebrews is leading to chapter 10, but to skip ahead, if we were to go to chapter 10, verse 19, we would read concerning Jesus. Therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter where? The holiest of holies. 
that all of us in Christ now have access not to the replica, but to the real thing that we have access because of his finished work. He says in verse 24 that he entered into God's presence for us. This is beautiful. Verse 25, nor was it that he would offer himself often as the high priest enters the holy place year by year with blood that is not his own. Otherwise, he would have needed to suffer often since the foundation of the world, but now once at the consummation of the ages, he has been manifested to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So here we, we touch upon a theme that flows throughout Hebrews, this, this idea of once and for all. We see it three times in our section here, but, but it's really only two times. So this we just read, but now once at the consummation of the ages, down to verse 27 as dealing with man dies once, But then we see in verse 28, so Christ also having been offered once to bear the sins of many. The thing that we need to understand that Hebrews is trying to make the point of Christ's death on the cross was a one-time event. It's not something that was repeated over and over and over again. His death on the cross was sufficient to pay for your sins and for my sins. When we celebrate communion and we reflect on the Lord's, it's not his body and his blood being re-sacrificed over and over again. It's a memorial that we look back to the actual event that he did for us. If you're a Christian and you've believed in him, your sins are paid for. It's so hard for us to receive this forgiveness. When I became a Christian, I continued to condemn myself. I could understand, oh yeah, Jesus paid the debt for my sin, but all of these sins I was going to hold on to. And I was going to beat myself up over them. And when I got around Christians, I didn't want to expose the who Gunner really was and the history of what Gunner had experienced. And so God has been peeling me away like an onion, giving me a pulpit to teach the word where I continually have to expose myself in my past like life of folly and sinfulness. Like as Scott points out, to understand grace. I don't know about you, but it's a hard thing to experience grace. It's so easy to to come to Christ to receive his forgiveness, but then to stay condemned in your sin. Paul writes in Galatians 5.1, it's for freedom that Christ has set you free. Now he's speaking concerning the law, but what did the law do? It continued to show you your sin and your need. And so when you, after having received Christ as your Savior, and you feel guilt for you being a sinner, you need to understand that Jesus' death on the cross paid for it. You stand clean. You stand pure. Your conscience is no longer defiled. You are able to serve him. You're able to worship him by his cleansing. This is huge. Now, verse 27, he's going to talk about death. Inasmuch as it is appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment. There's so many things to say about this. First, there's, there's no biblical support at all for purgatory. 
Um, my mentality in some ways was a little bit skewed by my upbringing in the Catholic Church. You know, I have memories of being a 12-year-old kid going up for communion and the, the priest like putting a handful of wafers in my hand saying, it looks like you need extra. Oh, yeah, like I guess it's, it's in there nibbling on the way. Like, as a pastor, I think, what priest does that? I was like super special that a priest gave me a handful of wafers, like crazy to me. The idea that when you die, maybe you're stuck in this underworld. And for those who remain to do these works, to try to get to kind of push your loved one over the edge to get them into heaven, that's not what the Bible says. It says, in as much as it's appointed for men to die once, and after this comes judgment, you die, you face God. The other thing I want to point out, well, there's no such thing as... Uh, reincarnation, like the Bible kind of does away with reincarnation. You die, your test run was over. There's no going back, second chance, third chance, infinite chance. You die, you're done. Everything you did in that life, that's how the chips fall when you die, that's how the chips fall. And hopefully you did something with Jesus, namely trusted him. This word appointed, um, destined is another word, there should be great comfort for the Christian concerning this life. And yet it pains me to see so many Christians who are trapped in fear, not fully living for God because they fear that their physical body might be hurt. We sing songs, Lord, whatever you want me to do. But there's no way I'm crossing the border to Tecate to go visit some kids in an orphanage because I read in the paper today that in Tijuana there's a bunch of murders going on. So no way, Jose. I'm not trying to sit here to, to guilt you, but maybe I am, I don't know. Like that. <laughs> but I'm not trying to pressure, but, but to think about like what, what's driving your decisions. Are, are you making decisions based on fear? Or are you basing your decisions like, I don't think it's wise to go down there. It's not because of fear of my life. My life is in God's hands. Like Both can be true. I don't, I'm not trying to suggest that because your death has been appointed, you could go over to I-15 and play Frogger on the freeway just with your body. And if you die, so be it. That was God. That's not what I'm saying. But if we understand that our life is in God's hands, you're, 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 you're free to follow him. You're free to serve wherever. You're free to fly in an airplane. You're you're free to live in Valley Center and ride on a horse and not be fearful that you might be bucked off and something bad happen. Like the whole idea of the sovereignty of God gives us this freedom and this peace because our life is not our own and if he takes it, so be it. To live as Christ and to die as gain is what Paul wrote. Solomon in Ecclesiastes 7.2 says it's better to go to the house of mourning than the house of feasting. I always thought that was crazy. But then the reality is you go to a, a funeral and there's your buddy Joe that's now in a box before you. And it's hard because we're told also in Ecclesiastes that God has placed eternity in our heart. And so when we see Joe in the box... We're, we're faced with the reality that Joe being in the box is going to be Gunner in the box one day. 
and in Ecclesiastes 7 too, it says that the living take it to heart because one day that's going to be them. So you start to ponder one day and it's going to be faster than I realize that I'm going to be in that box. And so I better start doing some things to get right with God. And what, what the author of Hebrews is saying is that Jesus has died for you. You don't know how long you have. You better respond to him. That we better prepare for that day when we're in the box and standing before God. And we're told that when we make that decision to follow after him, that even though that day may be 50 years down the road, you're to live your life in preparing for that day. That when we stand before God as Christians, we're going to give an account for how we lived, your li- how we lived our lives. I'll say, okay, I gave you this, this, and this. What'd you do with it? And I don't, th- I don't think it's going to be a shameful thing because our sin's been paid for, but it's... it's you know, you might only have a couple things, but he's going to kind of go through your life. I think he has something more powerful than a PowerPoint presentation, but I kind of like, hey, you did this for me. That was really good. boy, here's a crown for you. Our death will come faster than we realize. So as Hebrews chapter 3 says, today if you hear his voice, don't harden your hearts. Respond to him. Then he, as a broken record, he continues. Verse 28, so Christ also having been offered once, once to bear the sins of many. I skipped over a part that I thought was really good. But if you go back to verse 26 at the very end, I'm going to put my finger there. I actually have a star by it, but that's not good enough for me. So Christ also, having been offered once to bear the sins of many, the last part of verse 26, to put away sin by the sacrifice of himself. So on the cross, he's put away sin. And if you've trusted in him, it's sufficient. And we're told He's going to appear again without reference to sin because sin is dealt with. Then the question is, what did you do with Jesus? Did you accept him or did you reject him? The default is rejecting. But for those who have accepted him, to those who eagerly await him. Remember I talked about Reuben going into the holiest of holies? They eagerly waited for the high priest. Hopefully he would come out. I don't know if he's going to survive this time. Our high priest is in the holiest of holies, the holiest of holies. And we should be eagerly waiting for him. John tells us in 1 John chapter 2, verses, it's up there, 26 through verse 3 of chapter 3, that we're to abide with Christ, that we're to walk closely with him so that when he comes, we don't shrink away in shame, but that we're just ready to leap into his arms. It's beautiful. So today we turn our attention to communion. If you would turn with me to the, towards the front of 1 Corinthians chapter 11. This all ties together. And so in 1 Corinthians 11, verses 23 through 33, there's a section dealing with the people in Corinth. This is modern-day Greece. They were a mess. The Corinth church, as I often refer to them, is like the Jerry Springer church. They, they made Jerry Springer seem like a homeschool convention. These people 
were a disaster. And yet, by God's grace, Paul refers to them as saints. And so at the very end, in the midst of all their stuff, they've been dealing with drunkenness and sort of all sorts of craziness during the Lord's Supper. Paul is trying to help them understand what the Lord's Supper is all about. So it goes from 23 to 37. I'm going to start at the back half of it up in verse 27. Dealing with the first part of communion, we read, Therefore, whoever eats the bread or drinks the cup of the Lord in an unworthy manner shall be guilty of the body and the blood of the Lord. But a man must examine himself, and so doing he is to eat of the bread and drink of the cup. For he who eats and drinks, eats and drinks judgment to himself if he does not judge the body rightly. For this reason, many of you are weak and sick and a number sleep. That means they have died for doing this incorrectly. This is something we should take very seriously as we come to the Lord's table. But if we judged ourselves rightly, we would not be judged. But when we are judged, we are disciplined by the Lord so that we will not be condemned along with the world. So then, my brethren, when you come together eat to eat, wait for one another. Okay, so on this, I want to say a couple things. Um, the first part of communion is a time of self-reflection. First, if you've never trusted in Christ as your Savior, communion is not for you. If you want to be a Christian, it's as simple as believing. That I believe that what Jesus did, it was on my behalf, and I... And I I'm going to trust in him and his work. My life is now his. There's been an exchange. It's an instantaneous thing. But, but if you haven't accepted Christ as your Savior, I would encourage you to abstain from communion. We're told that this is a time for us to sort of evaluate ourselves. As Christians, you are still sinners. I think there's a lot of times when people think, oh, when I become a Christian, that means I'm sinless. No, you're a saved sinner. And so we're told that when we get saved, we're baptized by the Spirit, we're sealed in Him until the day of redemption. But then as you live your life, hopefully by the Spirit of God and some maturity on your part, you sin less. I think the longer I've been a Christian, I've realized that the little sins become big sins. The big sins aren't as big anymore. Like I'm not doing the big, the quote-unquote big sins. You know, parking in people's handicap spots, which drives me crazy. Thanks for laughing. That was good. Um, but the little things is we have the Spirit of God within us, like, like how we think about somebody that ticks us off, like, that, like just the conviction of like, that's not very Christ-like. This is our time for us to reflect and say, Lord, show me areas where I'm missing the mark. Show me areas where I've sinned and I haven't confessed. So you're still a Christian. But when you sin as a Christian, we're told that it, 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 it separates the relationship that you have with God. And the way that you restore that relationship is you spend time and you confess your sin to him. And we're told in 1 John 1, 9 that he is faithful to cleanse us, to make us righteous. And so to, we're going to have the guys, I don't even know who the guys are, they're going to come up. We're going to pass out the elements. But as the elements are going out, I would just ask that you... Um, you hold them to wait for one another and we'll cover the rest of communion. But during this time, just bow your heads.
and seek God and ask him to show you areas that you need to confess. If you're drawing a blank, I'd always encourage you to then go to pride because we all have something that we need to confess. Father, we do thank you that um, you're a God of grace. We thank you that Christ's work on the cross was sufficient. Lord, we thank you that in our sinfulness, in our flesh, Lord, that you love us, that you cleanse us, that you're patient with us. Father, I pray that you would help us to, to be set free from the bondage of past sin. Your word tells us that we're cleansed as we confess through the work of Jesus on the cross. And it's in his name we pray. Now, if we go back to the top of 1 Corinthians chapter 11 at verse 23, we read, uh, Paul writes, For I received from the Lord that which I also delivered to you, that the Lord Jesus in the night which he w- was betrayed took bread, and when he'd given thanks, he broke it and said, this is my body, which is for you. Do this in remembrance of me. This, this was the night that he was betrayed. They were celebrating the Passover meal. The Passover meal inaugurated in Egypt, or reflecting upon Egypt, their deliverance from Egypt, the, the passing over of the people who slaughtered a lamb, and really sort of kicked off the Mosaic system, the, the Levitical law as Moses would lead them um, out of slavery. So Jesus that night, he had a cracker or, or the flatbread free of leaven because it was a Passover. He's, he tells them, this is my body. It's been broken for you. Foretelling of what would come that night as they went to Gethsemane, as Jesus was arrested as they brutally beat him, first by the religious leaders, then he was transferred under uh, Pontius Pilate, and they scourged him where they took whips that had basically chunks that would rip out the flesh as they whipped him. He was brutally beaten. He was ultimately sacrificed on the cross in the most horrific way possible, the most shameful way possible amongst criminals. And he says... As often as you take this, do this in remembrance of me. So we have the cracker to remind us of Jesus' body that was broken for us. And then he continues. In the same way, verse 25, he took the cup. They would have had one cup of, of wine. We have little cups of grape juice. In the same way, he took the cup also after supper, saying this, cup is the new covenant in my body. Interesting. All of the talk through Hebrews, old covenant, new covenant, Passover meal, inaugurated, like the inauguration of the old covenant. Jesus is saying something's about to change. There's going to be an inheritance. There's going to be a cleansing available to you. What the old covenant can never do, what I'm about to do is to bring you cleansing deep within your conscience. So as often as you do this, do this in remembrance of me. And then in verse 26, there's another element, the fourth element. So the first element is confession. Second, body broken. Um, then we have the cup to remember the new covenant. 
verse 26, so often overlooked in communion that there's a, there's a, there's a part of communion that has to do with proclaiming the gospel to the lost world around us. Verse 26, for as often as you eat this bread and drink this cup, symbols of the gospel that Jesus died according to scriptures for the payment of our sins, that in his death, burial, and resurrection, life has been made available to the world. He says, for as often as you eat this bread and drink the cup, you proclaim the Lord's death until he comes because he's returning. And he's commissioned us to go, to share, to be his ambassadors. And so, Father, as we take communion today, we are reminded that we bring nothing to the table. We're humbled by your mercy. We are grateful for the work that Jesus did on the cross. As we eat this cracker symbolizing his body that was beaten, broken, we're reminded of the whore that should have been our lives, but he stood as our substitute. And that when it was done, it was finished, and he's no longer there. He is sitting at the right hand of the Father in the actual holiest of holies. We thank you for this new covenant. We thank you that it's not a a covenant that's conditional on our actions, our being good enough. It's based totally on the work that Jesus did on our behalf. It's hard for us to understand that we have been beneficiaries of this inheritance that we have no right, no claim to. And Father, as we receive this gift of salvation, we ask that you would help us to to see our loved ones, to see our neighbors, to see the people that we interact with day by day through your eyes, that we would take this commission to go to share, to be your ambassadors, as Paul writes in 2 Corinthians 5, that we would be a light unto this world. We thank you, Lord, for the work that you did for us. And it's in Christ's good name we pray. Amen.